all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB Public Media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. This is your program where you can call in with any type of medical question that you might have. That's right. It might be a symptom that you're having or maybe a new diagnosis, maybe uh, that you've gotten from somebody, uh, another physician that you don't quite understand everything about. Could be a side effect of something or an associated symptom. Whatever those questions may be, this is your chance to call in and to get an answer on those. If we can't find the answer, we'll certainly try to point you in the right direction to get those. Sometimes it's a little bit more complex than what we can uh, what we can give you over the air, but uh, it now is your time to do that. If you hear a previous caller, just in case you're just tuning in for the first time and you don't really know how it works here on Wednesdays, it doesn't have to be on the same topic, so it can be any type of topic. Uh, that you are interested in. So you can change it up. You know, it's sort of like one of those board games where it's like reverse. That's right. We can go the opposite direction on the board. Um, but really, you are the people who drive the content for uh, most Wednesdays. Every once in a while, we'll have sort of a thematic one. If you're not able to call in, you can always email us anytime. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Well, October, as you've probably heard, but just in case you haven't, is National Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And that is such an important topic. It's very personal to me as my mother had breast cancer uh, and a breast cancer recurrence. And uh, if you're, you know, not aware of the impact, breast cancer is one of the leading causes of cancer in women uh, and uh, can certainly affect them, particularly as you get older, you increase you increase your risk for that. Um, So I want to encourage everybody. I know a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to know it until I have it. And that's really not with the the ways that we have to treat breast cancer now, both surgical and non-surgical. There are very successful ways to do that. But screening and early detection is key. The longer you wait for that and you don't need to wait until you necessarily have symptoms because of the sort of the nature of breast cancer. So uh, if you are a woman of uh, uh, age of between 40 and 49, uh, you know, sort of average risk, don't really have a family history, um, I would encourage you to talk to your OBGYN or your primary care doctor to talk about, you know, whether or not a mammogram, which would be the first step in screening, would be for you. Certainly all women after the age of 50, I would recommend that. Do that for my own patients. 
And um, also, um, if you are at risk, and that could be uh, a higher risk group, uh, might be an indication to get screening earlier. So certainly, if you're sort of at a moderate risk with a first degree relative that uh, has had um, had a breast cancer, uh, or if you're at a high risk where you have a known genetic uh, there are certain genes that go along with breast cancers and ovarian cancer, and there's there's sort of a, a constellation of, of cancers that sort of go together as far as risk is concerned. So ovarian breast, peritoneal cancers, that's the lining of the abdomen. If you've had any of those or your family members have had those, you probably should be screened a little bit earlier. If, and certainly you're, if you're in a high-risk group if you've already had breast cancer. So lots of ways that we have to discuss how screening is. I know a lot of people are confused about that. Mammography is still the, uh, the sort of the gold standard as, as far as an initial screen. But there may be the higher your risk and the more likelihood that you might have a lesion. And for individuals, there may be some other tests that need to be done like ultrasound or MRI. Uh, which has been very useful uh, and can also be uh, combined uh, with uh, with biopsies, uh, either use, utilizing the MRI or uh, ultrasound. But the bottom line is, talk to your physician about whether or not you should be screened. And I prompt my patients because, you know, I have lots of things that pop up on my chart, uh, my electronic medical record for my patients that remind me about this. But I'm always appreciative if my patients remind me about things, hey, doc, what about screening for colon cancer? What about screening for breast cancer? So take the initiative, bring that up. You don't have to go it alone. Your doctor's going to you know, partner with you, and there's plenty of other people that can do that. And if you are, if you do have a suspicious lesion, uh, ask them, you know, about what to expect, about sort of the progression of that. But it always, 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 as it relates to breast cancer, is better to catch these early rather than late. And for more information about that, we're not going to talk about the entire program today, but for more information, tune in on Friday to Dr. Jasmine Kinsey on Southern Remedy Women's Health, and they're going to go into more detail about that. That's sort of our thematic, one of our thematic programs throughout the week. But I just wanted to make sure on our program that we did plug that and uh, and uh, investigate that and be open to that. Screening's always important. Yeah, speaking of screenings, too, I have a lot of other screenings. Another one that's really good is uh, lung cancer screening. And lung cancer is another cancer that a lot of people don't realize that if you catch it early, I think everybody sort of has this idea that it's like it was back in the 70s and 80s, that if you were diagnosed with lung cancer, there were really the uh, odds that you were going to come out of that alive for any, um, you know, for greater than five years were pretty low at the time, except for a few types of lung cancers. Now we have such really good ways of screening. There's a low dose screen, a CT scan that you can get after a consultation with a, usually a lung doctor, a pulmonologist to sort of tell you about your risk and what to expect. And if you have a significant amount of years that you've been smoking, uh, your primary care doctor can refer you for that. And that can be very useful in finding very early lung cancers that, again, if treated early on, can be curative uh, and have much better outcomes. So, But you have to get that screening. You can't just wait till you have a cough that won't go away or if you're coughing up, uh, you know, blood-tinged sputum. That's way late in the game. Uh, and if you, you know, again, smoking is probably the biggest risk factor there. So 
And don't think that you have a symptom that nobody else is going to have or a question that nobody else is going to have, because there's always we get validation of that. You know, even here in the studio, sometimes we're like, you know, I had that question. I've had a lot of my patients that have had allergy symptoms this month, and uh, a lot of them are saying, you know, they normally would have um allergy symptoms, but this has been sort of a bad time. And that's really because of our weather weather patterns that we're having right now. So there's a lot more things that are floating around in the air since it's been so dry um, and uh, with lack of rain in most areas in the state and, and region in some areas. And uh, sometimes you have to be a little bit more aggressive about that. And with allergy symptoms, there is a lot of overlap with sinusitis, with viral infections, and it's sort of hard to tease those out over time. But if you're continually having sort of that watery nose uh, discharge down the back of your throat, maybe it's a chronic cough, particularly if you're laying down, talk to your doctor about that. They may need to step up therapy, uh, as I have as an allergy-ridden uh, patient, um, all summer long. Hopefully, we'll get some rain to sort of wash things out after that. Let's go to Jack in Piperton, Tennessee. Did I get that pronunciation of the town right, Jack? Yes. All right. Yes. What's your question this morning? Okay, I talked to you a few months ago about a back problem I had with the bottom of my right foot was going numb, mm-hmm. and um, so you gave me your opinion as I should, you know, go talk to a back doctor and stuff like that. Well, I was taking these shots, a pain management doctor, and they last about three months, and they really help it out. I went to see the back doctor and explained everything, and he would like to operate um, I'm 75 years old and pretty, really pretty good health. And he wants to do a TLIF, where he's going to, uh, the L4 and L5 are in bad shape. And he wants to go in and um, do minimally invasive surgery and, you know, take the matter out, shave the bone a little bit, and put some kind of bone plaster in or something, put a cage around them. And, my questions are, what um, can I do after that's done, is one. And number two, I had a hip replacement a number of years ago, and um, for some reason or another, about two weeks after I had it, I had problems urinating, et cetera, et cetera. So I had to go back to the hospital. I wondered if that's a consequence of could be a consequence of this again or not. And then post-operatively after the TLIF, why be able to twist and bend and everything else? Yeah, great questions. Um, I will qualify this by saying I am am not the surgeon, so um, you know I, that's not in my training. So that's these are exactly the questions to ask your surgeon about risk, benefit, and side effect, potential side effects, and what to expect afterwards. But I can comment at least a little bit on that in the patients that I've had that had similar surgeries. Um, you know, usually when a surgeon says, okay, it's time for low back surgery. And I, it sounds like, you know, I, um, I don't remember the details of our conversation before, but it sounds like by going to pain management and doing other things, uh, you've put that off about as long as you can. 
when it does start to affect the nerves of our lower extremities, uh, like on the foot, either loss of sensation or loss of motor function, those can be some indications that you might need to consider surgery. And then every back pain is a little bit different. And even if it's the same thing, you know, people will say, well, I have a slip disc. And do you operate on slip disc um, for, you know, this type of pain? Or I have a bone spur that's put that's uh, pressed on a nerve. And honestly, all of those things in the right kind of setting with the right person, you have to sort of weigh that. And your surgeon has to make those decisions with you about whether or not it's time for surgery. So obviously, if they if he's making that, I'm assuming that he's thinking we're at the point where medical management and other interventions with pain therapy uh, are not like the injections are not going to fix this problem, certainly. And they're getting to the point where they're probably not working and to minimize any further damage to nerves, um, to those nerves that go to your legs and feet, um, that's, again, that's another indication for surgery. Minimally invasive is a lot better in this type of surgery. Uh, it's just there's less muscles to cut into. There's a smaller incision. It's a much better recovery from that. Um, as far as what you're going to be able to do afterwards, most of these that stabilize those two vertebrae, and if I heard that right, it, I think it was just L4 and L5, uh, which are the, the last two vertebrae before they attach to your pelvis. And um, you do lose a little bit of mobility with those um, if they're, you know, basically what they're, it sounds like they're going to do is to sort of stabilize those so they're not moving. Um, so you lose a little bit of mobility as, and you're probably going to be limited a little bit by pain after the surgery. Although my patients within a week, they're going to be in, you know, physical therapy and moving around and try to regain a lot of that mobility. Most of them had decreased mobility anyway due to the pain prior to surgery. So it's not a big change. Um, but you're, I don't think it, with this type of surgery, you're certainly not going to have to be in a big brace or something like that, unless there's other, other things that I don't know about, but that would be the, that, that would not be the norm. Um, and as far as the side effects from previous surgery, as men get older, we tend to have prostate problems anyway. So as the prostate gets bigger, you can have urinary retention problems if they, uh, if you either take medications that um, delay emptying or, um, you know, sometimes they can affect the muscles that empty the bladder of urine. Or if you have a urinary catheter put in during surgery, which is pretty typical, uh, sometimes you can have a little bit longer recovery time where you have urinary retention. So that is definitely something to tell you, both your surgeon and the anesthesiologist before the surgery so that they may they may want to choose some other medications to avoid some medications that would put you at risk again for that. Um, but yeah, I, I would say this sounds pretty standard. And um, again, it's a judgment call because the surgeon, you know, uh, they sort of have to weigh the risk and benefits and about what time it is to do it. And again, I, we've talked about it many times on this program. Lower back pain is a different beast than upper back pain. Um, so or neck pain in particular, neck, uh, neck pain and how it uh, affects the nerves to your arms um, or referred pain from your neck down to your arm. Um, if, you know, the things that can cause that are much more amenable to surgery. So, um, 
But yeah, I would I would re ask those questions to your doctor beforehand. You're not going to bother them. Um, just say, hey, I have some concerns, and ask the exact same questions you asked me. But it sounds like it's an appropriate time for that, and that the recovery would probably be be pretty easy. Well, after I um, recovered, we talked about um, loss of mobility. We just talking about during the recovery period. So uh, it's not going to be that appreciable at that level. So anytime that they fix vertebrae together, so they can fuse vertebrae together either with external structures or sometimes with, you mentioned, like bone cement and those kinds of things. Um, If they are securing a vertebrae to uh, one to the other, you lose a little bit of mobility, but it's not going to be a whole lot if it's just two vertebrae. Um, so in other words, you're going to be able to recover to bend down, lean, you know, lean back, rotate back and forth. That would be the goal afterwards. And I think, you know, once you fix the problem that's going on right now with physical, a good physical therapy program afterwards, you'll be able to do that. But you, you know, you may lose, say, if you're touching your toes, you may lose about an inch or so of how far down you can go. Um, just because those two vertebrae now are not moving, they're not bending if they're fixed to one another. So I guess you're okay with that kind of surgery. Well, again, I don't want to say, you know, either do it or don't, but it does, I would do exactly what you have done before is do physical therapy, look at pain management, look at medical therapy for the pain, um, get a good physical therapy assessment of how much, functional loss or sensory loss that you have in that foot and then if it's not getting better if it's getting worse then yeah i think it's if it were me i probably after that i would i would consider surgery at that point but again you need to ask exactly your surgeon hey how much function am i going to lose with this or am i going to regain some of it um and you know, and just sort of, and they'll, a good surgeon will be able to tell you that. And, uh, they've got the data, you know, to say, Hey, of all my patients, uh, 85% or 90% would have, you know, with this type of, of surgery and the type of impairment that you have right now, this is what to expect. I have one last question. And I sure. really appreciate you. I've been listening to you for years. Um, if I would decide to try to continue with these injections, these epidural-type injections, uh-huh. how long can you take them? Yeah, usually, I mean, you can take them indefinitely, but they do, usually they don't do them more than about three times a year. Um, they may right. do it a little bit more frequently than that, and there's reasons for that, like you do if they have, there's different things they can inject. So usually there's like an anesthetic that goes in so you know exactly where you're going into. And you can say, yeah, oh, that feels really good right now. And then there's uh, most of the time they'll use a type of steroid that's sort of long acting that they uh, inject into the space um, where you're having the problem. And that can last, you know, a couple of months. Every time you get that, there is a small amount that's absorbed over time and it can have steroid effects not quite as much as if you were taking it by mouth, like a pill, you know, a steroid like prednisone or decadron or something like that. But that's the reason why they sort of have to limit that to three times a year. But it is something to bring up with, particularly as you get older with other things like cataracts or glaucoma uh, risk is increased. Overall bone density can be decreased over time. So those things do need to be considered if you're getting those types of injections over a long period of time. Okay. 
Well, I'm kind of scared, but I'll call the doctor again, and I might just go ahead and do it because those injections sooner or later are probably going to get to me. Yeah, and, and again, it's a conversation. It's not as cut and dry, particularly with low back pain. It's very frustrating sometimes to deal with it and not have a clear-cut answer that, hey, yeah, I need surgery right now. Now, I mean, there are instances where some patients have different types of problems, like they'll have a narrowing in the canal where the nerves go through. Um, I do have that. Yeah. I have that. And, you know, some of them, they'll say, hey, all of a sudden, I can't, uh, I can't control my bladder or my bowels. And that, that's one of the, you know, that's one of the cases where you're like, yep, we got to have surgery right now. Um, but, you know, it doesn't sound like you're having those. You are having a little bit of neurologic dysfunction in that foot. But, um, again, it's sort of a, it is sort of a judgment call. And the surgeons are, should be the ones to sort of make that. Well, okay. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling, and uh, good luck to you. We'd love to, hopefully we'll have a good uh, response from that. Complications around surgery, um, are that that is something to think about, particularly as we get older. And uh, I was just seeing a patient of mine yesterday, and they had been hospitalized for something and had a lot of questions to why a lot of the medications were dropped during that time period and they didn't really see the need to do that and why they were on different medications when they went home than what they normally are. So there are a lot of complexities to that and there may be some very good reasons why a patient is taken off a medicine that say uh, with that uh, has a side effect of making their potassium higher uh, and their potassium got too high in the hospital or during a surgery certain medications that we would normally give that wouldn't have a high incidence of side effects say in younger people um, as you get older you sort of have to be careful about that and uh, again Pre-operative uh, screening, either from a primary care doctor or from an anesthesiologist, is very important, or both, um, to identify some of these risks. That's one of the reason why reasons why surgeries have been so much more successful than, say, um, 50 or 60 years ago, <clears throat> has been because of those screenings and improvements in medications and dosing. Uh, we now... Don't give standard doses to all patients of anesthesia. We really calculate that according to their age, uh, what other medications they normally would take, their other medical conditions, their weight. All those things really are complex issues that the anesthesiologist uses to choose the right agent to use uh, or agents for both pain control and anesthesia. And then also, um, you know, sort of how much of those to use. So those are all things to uh, to consider. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions, taking calls, and maybe some emails about any kind of health-related issue that you might have, or maybe it's somebody in your family or a friend. I must say, during this time of year, I love during our break when we have the boo with the laugh. That is one of the most hilarious things to me. So I really appreciate that. It makes my day. Um, you know, headaches are common, and a lot of people have headaches from time to time, and uh, there may be some very good reasons to have that. Migraine headaches in particular are one of the most common types of headache. And it's very interesting. Like, we have some, 
We keep getting more and more data about how migraine headaches uh, come about and some of the triggers for those. Of course, most people sort of know the triggers. It might be lack of sleep. It might be certain things that they eat. Uh, Some people get migraines with certain types of substances in foods like red wine or white wine and um, other things like that. So uh, the very common, they tend to have weird things that are associated with them. And sometimes people know a migraine's coming on because they experience what's called an aura. Okay. And this is not like you're at a seance and you're seeing like a, a white light or, you know, some kind of spooky light, even though it is Halloween coming up. Uh, it's not like a spooky light around somebody, but an aura is a symptom that is not necessarily the headache portion of it, but something else. And it is different for every person. And sometimes they can change over time. Sometimes you will have an aura and not develop the main headache sign, but it is sort of a warning sign to say, hey, you might be getting this headache. And again, it could be flashing lights. It can be blurry vision. It can be a smell. Some people actually have an aura of a smell. In younger individuals, particularly kids and adolescents, you can actually have abdominal pain um, uh, variants of migraines. And sometimes those can be considered aura, although a lot of people will say, well, that's just the, the headache itself. So there's all kinds of different sensations or um, experiences that they might get beforehand. And the thing about migraines is if you wait too long, whatever works for you, and that can be something as simple as Tylenol or ibuprofen, uh, it can be Excedrin, or you might have more migraine-specific medications like Imitrex that you take or Maxalt. They even make a Maxalt MLT that's a, that's a sublingual um, um, preparation for that so that it sort of gets in your system a little bit faster. Um, those all um, are more effective if you take it during the aura. Like if you just say, you know what, I'm just going to gut it out and just uh, I'll see how if I can just sort of push through this. Usually that is not going to be good from a headache standpoint. As far as causes too, one of the more common causes is dehydration. So not drinking enough fluids throughout the day, even if you're inside, uh, that can actually be a trigger if you're a little bit volume down. Um, so drinking that and uh, not overindulging in things, it might give you a withdrawal migraine headache too, like uh, coffee, caffeine. Uh, if you do, if you drink a lot of that and uh, ingest a lot of that, then you'll. Um, this happens a lot with people if they're doing a lot of energy drinks, and then all of a sudden they go on vacation and they're they'll call into the office and say, "Hey, I'm down at the beach and I'm not." drinking my energy drinks and I have the most horrendous headache. Um, that's probably, that's probably one of the, the causes of that, but staying hydrated is very important. Some people, uh, take medications for prophylaxis. In other words, to try to prevent those migraines, particularly if you're, uh, having more than about two migraines a month. Um, or certainly if you're having the symptoms every, every day or, uh, several times a week and it's interfering with your normal things that you're doing with your life, then you may need to be on a medication to help prevent them. And again, there's very specific things or some older medications like some of our antidepressants that have been used. Topamax is another one uh, or topiramate is another name for that. Um, or, and again, in younger individuals, riboflavin, which is a B vitamin, has been looked at in somewhere between the 400 and 600 milligram a day range. Again, perfectly healthy thing to take. That and hydration can sometimes, particularly in younger individuals, sort of 
not uh, sort of uh, push aside what other medications you have to take for that. So very common. Uh, talk to your physician about those. There's some great uh, literature uh, in in some of the uh, uh, online literature on that, too, about things that work. I wouldn't try things outside the riboflavin because they're just not that good. Um, stimulants can certainly cause that. Other medications that you may have been prescribed can do it too. So lots of other things to do that. And by the way, you can have, if you have migraine headaches and then have something else like a sinus infection and have a headache, you can have a regular headache or your sinus infection can trigger your migraine. So it can be sort of complex and sort of chicken or the egg on what you can do. But very common. You can have those aura symptoms though and not have a headache. And we have sort of migraine equivalents sometimes like that. Well, Halloween is next week. And, you know, over the, I can remember when I was growing up, it was, uh, we had a lot more people that went trick or treating. I know some neighborhoods do that and there's some more safe places to do it. Uh, but you want to have plans beforehand. Um, I'm a big proponent of that, particularly with younger kids. So have a plan about where you're going, how long are you going to be there, prep your kids. Have some backup plans if they get lost because you can turn around and your little ghost is running in the wrong direction and uh, he can, it looks like every other little ghost out there uh, dressed up. So it's in, in costume. Sometimes it can be pretty hard to keep up with your kids. Um, make sure they understand what's expected of them. Uh, it's always good to sort of screen what they're getting to. Um, I, you know, I always tell parents to do that. So having, you know, whatever container that they're getting the candy, don't let's eat the candy later. Um, and if you really don't want them to get too sick, cause we oftentimes we'll see kids the day after and they're just like got worn out, less sleep, ate a bunch of candy and the next day they're sick, um, by what, from what they ate. It might be better to eat a meal before you go trick-or-treating. That way they're less likely to indulge in the candy. And certainly if they're on an empty tank and they're going out and trick-or-treating, that's a, that's a, that's a sure enough recipe for some bad moods out there. Um and then safety, too. So there are lots of different costumes now that have safety features built in, like reflective tape and so forth, that uh, still looks r- perfectly fine for a costume. But if uh, there's cars driving by, I know another thing, some neighborhoods just sort of shut down traffic in some areas, and or they'll have a central area where people uh, sort of gather. So that's always uh, good to know beforehand. But just uh, make sure that your kids aren't running out in the street in front of a car. We see, unfortunately, still some... Uh, some incidences of that um, of kids getting hurt during during this time of year, and uh, and respect other people's stuff. You know, I, there's tons of kids out there now, and particularly older kids that they view Halloween. I think to play lots of expensive tricks, like how can we trash the yard and that kind of thing. So just, uh, again, prepping your kids about what's expected during this time of year can go a long way. And maybe looking at some alternatives, lots of churches, civic centers, uh, parks have lots of events that can be just as fun and a little bit more controlled and less uh, safety uh, issues with those. Let's go to Tom in Hattiesburg. Good morning, Tom. Hey, good morning. You know, I'm 74 years old in good health. You know, for like the last 15 years, I've been riding a bike about six miles a day at least. 
But over the last couple of years, I've developed this bad, sometimes when I'm up walking around, this bad, bad pain in my right gluteus maximus, I guess. I mean, you know, that's the my right butt cheek. Uh, sometimes it feels like it's totally in the muscle. Sometimes it's an annoyance, but sometimes it's really almost disabling. I mean, I want to sit down and not walk anymore. Any idea what that is or what I could do to prevent it or alleviate it? Yeah, a couple of things. Sometimes there's there's several different things that you can get, and particularly if you're a rider, when you ride in the saddle, um, it can exacerbate that, you know, sort of position and sensation. So, uh, you know, I, the first thing I would do is to make sure that you got good riding. If you've been riding that long, you've probably figured out the right, way to sit on the saddle and you it may be time to look at the saddle that you have a lot of uh, men in, in particular have a cutout portion in the middle of their saddle if they're if they're riding uh, seat by the way not a horse saddle so that's you know for all you non-riders out there um and then where you sit on that, because really it should be over the ischial spines, which that's sort of the harder. If you feel back there on the backside, that's more towards the middle because it, it right. looks like it's, you know, and, and so that's the first thing. And you're probably already doing that. But there are some other things over time that can uh, cause some of the pain where you're describing it. Sometimes you can have what's called the uh, piriformis syndrome. And it can cause both low back pain and pain that's similar in fashion to sciatica. Uh, so it's about where you're you're describing it. You could have sciatic pain too because it sort of goes through that muscle um, through your your gluteus maximus. But um, but piriformis syndrome is a problem with the muscle itself sort of entrapping a nerve. And there's a lot of good stretching and physical therapy that could be done for that. What I like to do, you know, I usually if patients come in the office, I'll try to, you know, see if they have any any symmetry problems of their hips when they're standing up, when they're bending over, sort of try to get them in the same type of position that they would ride in and then see if there's any subtle differences. And if there's anything on exam, certainly at that point, I think I would go either to a sports medicine physician to look at you or... I go straight to physical therapy, particularly physical therapists that are more used to athletes. So, you know, some of the bigger physical therapy, uh, certainly in Hattiesburg, you got a couple of places there. You know, if you think about, okay, which sports medicine places service USM would be what I would ask uh, the athletes. And that's where I would go. Um, but they can probably get to the bottom of what's actually going on or a sports medicine group there in that area. Um, but again, it could be a number of things. Sometimes you can get some scar tissue that builds up within the muscle itself, but where you're describing it, uh, you know, piriformis syndrome would be one sciatica would be another, or it might be something that's, you know, where that muscle's attaching to the, um, to the iliac crest, uh, or to the, to the back of the, of the sacrum. That's, that might be a problem too. And sometimes it's weird stuff that physical therapy will have you doing. I don't know if you've ever gone to them before and you're thinking, even as a physician, I'm like, there's no way this is going to help me. And it was the most bizarre maneuver and it, ten, it, it totally, you know, cured the pain over time and made sense physiologically. That's what their job is. That's what they're good at. So that's what I would do. But particularly those physical therapists and sports medicine people that deal with athletes and riders of bikes, um, because that's probably going to be a little bit more specific for the things that you're interested in. 
Okay. Well, I, I would comment I don't get the pain while I'm riding the bike. Got it's it. just when I'm just later on walking around. But thanks for the referral, I will check out a sports medicine doctor. I would have never thought about that on my own. Great. Good good to talk to you, Tom. I hope that uh, points you in the right direction and you get some uh, relief with that. I do want to remind people that uh, all of our listeners that if you do want to email us, please email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Susan in Brookhaven. Good morning, Susan. Uh, good morning, Dr. Jimmy. Thank you. I enjoy your show so very much. Oh, thank you. Um, I have a question. I'm a 78 year old female, very, 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 very active major cyclist. Um, blood work is all good except ferritin level has been up above 1500 okay so elevate yeah elevated i got it okay elevated ferritin and uh hemochondriasis if i pronounce that right has been ruled out kidney liver spleen scans clean blood work perfection other than that one thing yeah so what prompted them to check that to begin with do you know um Yes, I do, um, because I'm really into my health. Um, I, I just had been feeling poorly, and uh, my doctor ran a ferritin-level check, which is, you know, as you know, it's not normally run, and he picked up on it. Got it. So, uh, yeah, for the rest of our listeners, uh, ferritin is a protein. It is the intracellular, inside-the-cell protein that stores helps to store iron and it's very integral in iron synthesis and iron transport to the rest of the body and it's a very good indicator of of what your iron levels are Um, typically it is the reason i was asking about why they they checked it is that would be one of the things that you would check if you were iron deficient, if you were suspecting that you had a deficiency of iron. If you check an iron level in somebody, it can go up and down and not be as specific. So ferritin helps to sort of tease that out. And there's a couple other things that we check, like total iron binding uh, binding capacity and so forth. Right. But, um, But it also, it's made by the liver, and it can be what's called an acute phase reactant. So these are proteins that go up, when something is going on, but they're not very specific about what's going on. In other words, you can have an acute phase react. Actually, platelets can be an acute phase reactant. So if you are driving down the street and you have a car accident and you check some of these proteins or other things, they can be up transiently with that. And a lot of times, if that's all you find, we don't ever really nail down what the other cause is. And it sounds like... You know, they've looked for hemochromatosis that you said. That's a, like this is the opposite of iron deficiency anemia. You've got too much iron on board. Or they've looked for liver disease, and that sounds mm-hmm. like that's been fine, too. So we're sort of stuck now with this protein that's pretty high, but and you're for whatever reason, you're just making more of it. Um, now, you might want to, if you haven't already, you might want to see a hematologist because the, that's sort of in the realm with what a hematologist would normally look at. Um, but that's the problem sometimes with checking, you know, without <laughs> checking some of the labs, sometimes you'll get a elevated read uh, or an abnormal reading and you don't really know why it doesn't really fit with anything. So in this case, it's not very helpful. 
And sometimes you end up chasing labs, which is sounds like sort of what you're doing. Um, but as a, as a symptom, as a manifestation of fatigue, the elevated ferritin in and of itself shouldn't be that, um, you shouldn't, yeah, that shouldn't be causing that, but, um, but I don't know, that's sort of a, that's sort of a uh, red herring there about, uh, why it's elevated. If it were me, I probably would just repeat it about every three to six months and just see what it's doing and then look for other things that might be related to your symptoms. But in and of itself, the ferritin probably shouldn't be doing that. Okay, I am under the care of a, a hematologist, so we're good. I, I feel just stumped. Uh, yep. Don't have don't have an answer. Yeah, and sometimes that's sort of what we get, you know. And you just sort of are aware of that. And uh, if it doesn't really fit with something, I I'd always defer to the patient. Though there's you know, and you may be one of those people that's just making a whole lot more ferritin for whatever reason, and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Without being connected to something else or another disorder, it doesn't really have much value in you know contributing to figure out what's what's going on. Okay, well I appreciate the information so much. All right, Susan, thank you. Let's go to Wayne from Meadville. Good morning, Wayne. How you doing? Good. We got about two minutes left. Go ahead. I'm having leg cramps at nighttime uh, when I'm asleep, uh-huh. and I it make make me want to stretch and when I stretch on my on my right leg it, it cramps from the ankle up all the way up to the thigh and I was just wondering what I could do to uh, eliminate it I, I think I got neuropathy in that leg also oh, a what in that leg? Neuropathy. A neuropathy. Okay, yeah. Sometimes uh, cramps can be associated with certain types of neuropathy. Usually, when I have a patient come in and complain about uh, cramps, or uh, you know, that's what they're, the symptom that they're having, particularly at night. There are a couple other things to think about. One is restless leg syndrome, uh, and that certainly can go along with uh, cramping. Uh, at night, and that's really more of a sleep disorder that they can treat, and sometimes the cramping gets better. Sometimes it is an electrolyte disturbance, like a low potassium or low magnesium levels. Those are blood tests that would need to be checked, and if if they're in the normal range, you don't have to worry about it. Um, And sometimes just simple things like a mild muscle relaxer or stretching regimen can help with those. But I would have, you know, your physician check a couple of just basic labs, things like B12, folate, um, a um, potassium, magnesium level, just to see if those are abnormal. If they're normal, then they may want to send you sort of the physical therapy to have have them do. I mean, I'm giving a lot of I've sent a lot of people to physical therapy today uh, to do sort of a regimen for the lower extremity. But if you are having like a lot of other restless things or other sleep symptoms, a sleep physician might be the next person to uh, to see. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. We'll be right back. 